You're listening to the Earn That Body Podcast, episode number 141. Welcome to the Earn That Body Show with Kim Eagle. Kim is an award-winning personal trainer. She trains her clients all over the world online and is passionate about empowering people by getting fit and healthy. Everybody has a question for me. That's how I like it, right? I put it out there just the other week. Hey, does anyone have a question for the podcast? And I got so many responses. And I love doing the Ask Me Anything podcast episode because I can answer exactly what questions you have. So we're going to be doing that today. But first, we're going to talk about pasta in the eagle's eye on health. And now it's time for the eagle's eye on health. These are Kim's quick tips, latest health news, or piece of weekly inspiration. That's right. Pasta is what we're talking about in the eagle's eye on health today because a little quick quiz for you. Is pasta high or low on the glycemic index? What would you answer to that? Well, you may be somewhat astonished to learn that the correct answer is that it's actually low on the glycemic index. And this is from an article from the Idea Fitness magazine. So most people think that it's going to be high. Well, it's low. And of course, that means it has less of an effect on blood sugar levels than the higher GI foods like white bread. Now, even more of a surprise is that pasta may not be the culprit in weight gain that so many people believe it is to be, right? So many people tell me, I don't eat pasta because you'll gain weight. A systematic review and meta-analysis of 32 randomized controlled trials involving almost 2,500 adults was recently conducted on people who ate pasta, about 3.3 half cup servings per week instead of eating other carbs as part of a healthy, low GI diet. Now, the study found that pasta did not contribute to weight gain or an increase in body fat. In fact, analysis actually showed a small weight loss, about 1.4 pounds. That's pretty impressive. So contrary to concerns, perhaps pasta can be part of a healthy diet, such as a low GI diet. Now, when reporting their results, the researchers researchers did express caution about generalizing their findings to all body weight and adiposity outcomes, given that the trials assessed pasta in the context of a low GI dietary pattern only. And also, in the interest of transparency, it should be noted that the pasta maker Barilla provided some support for the study, though its experts hailed from the University of Toronto and St. Michael's. Now, they did ask Kat Bearfield, who's an MS, an RDN. She has a degree at NASM, CES, PES, a lot of degrees next to her name. They asked her what the findings of this actually reveals. And this is really what's most important. It's important, she said, to not vilify single foods or food groups. This study shows that pasta in and of itself does not lead to weight gain and can be part of a healthy diet though it's important to keep portions and total calorie intake in check. Boom, there you have it. Keeping it in check, everything in moderation, right? I eat pasta, I eat it probably twice a week. I try to have a whole wheat pasta, but not always because sometimes my husband cooks and sometimes he won't use it. (laughs) And I don't gain weight from it. So people who are so carb conscious, 
and they think that carbs are the enemy. They are not the enemy. And as you can see, pasta is not the enemy. It's not about the pasta. It's about how much of it are you eating? How often are you eating it? And really, are you getting in a combination of other healthy nutrients? Are you getting in enough protein, enough healthy fat with a healthy carbohydrate? So pasta is not the devil. Okay, back to ask me anything. I got some great questions from y'all. And just so you know, if you ever have a question, just shoot me an email, kim at earnthatbody.com, and I will put it on the list for the next time we do the Ask Me Anything podcast. Now, I'm going to include your name today because you put it down that you wanted to know, and I want to give you some credit for your question. The first question we have was from Anali Morris. She says, calories. If they say you lose weight with a calorie deficit, why do they also say if you don't eat enough calories, you won't lose weight? Does counting calories even matter as long as you eat healthy and nutrient-dense foods? Well, I think it's a great question, and I definitely have an answer for you. (laughs) Um, Really, yes, you do have to deficit your calories to lose weight. That's a given. But if you deficit them too much for too long, then your body takes over because your body is smarter than you are. And your body's only job is to keep you alive. And thank goodness for it because your body makes much smarter choices than you do often. For example, if you're not eating enough calories over a certain period of time, your body will naturally slow everything down because it wants to survive and you're not putting enough fuel in the tank. So yes, it's going to slow down your metabolism. You're going to feel more sluggish. Generally, people start feeling lethargic. You could have headaches. Your um, workouts are not feeling strong anymore. Everything is going to slow down because all of a sudden your body's like, I don't have enough calories. And if you really drop the calories too low, you're below what your daily recommended body needs just for things like breathing brushing teeth, and if you're so low under that, yeah, your body is going to shut down to try to help you survive because you can't live on like, you know, 600 calories a day. I'm sorry, you just can't, especially if you are working out. And that's really where the other part of this goes. If you are deficiting your calories and you're working out and you're doing double workouts, well, that is going to make things even worse because maybe you're not eating enough calories and now your body is saying, ah, I got to hold on to this weight right here because she is not going to fuel us enough. I can't keep losing weight. She's working out two to three times a day now. It's too much. I don't have enough fuel to keep going. So I'm going to hold on to every bit of fat that I can. And I see that a lot with clients, especially some of the athletes They're not eating enough for how much they're working out. So their body stalls and plateaus all weight loss. And generally, those people will stop seeing peak performance. You know, their performance levels are going down. So definitely check out episode podcast episode number 114. It talked about under eating and why it's not helping you lose weight, because that's going to go into even more detail. But generally, that's that's where it's at, Anali. You can you have to. deficit calories to lose weight, but if you deficit them too much, you're going to hit a plateau. And at that point, it would be very hard to lose weight. But great question. 
All right, my next question comes from Amy Christofferson. Amy Henry, that's how I'll always know you. Uh, anyway, she asked about cupping. Cupping, that was an interesting, uh, she just wrote cupping, I believe. So I'm, I, I'm assuming you want to know, like, what is it? Why does it work? And I'm happy to answer that because of my background in Eastern medicine. So for those of you who don't know, I went to graduate school for Eastern medicine, and I was an acupuncturist for many years. And one of the Eastern traditions in medicine is cupping. And you've probably seen it because it got very popular because of Michael Phelps. He went into the Olympics with about 20 cupping marks all over his back. And that's when everybody's like, what's wrong with him? What's on his back? What is that? So cupping is a technique that is done back in the day, like I said. So in Chinese medicine, we use glass cups and we would take a little cotton ball we would put alcohol in it, we would light a match, and we'd light the cotton ball on fire. Then you put it inside the cup and you sort of rotate it around and then you quickly pull the cotton ball out and you suction the cup really quickly onto the skin of your patient. And so when you do that, it gets a really tight suction. And you'll see the skin around the cup like really lift up, it looks really weird. And you'll start to see the skin sort of get red and, and sometimes even purple. And there are different reasons that we did it in Chinese medicine. Uh, what you see it mostly used for is what we would call a stagnation in the area. So like we call it qi stagnation or blood stagnation. And the client, usually an athlete in this day when you see it done, has some kind of pain. So maybe shoulder pain, back pain. And they're, they're generally saying, I'm gonna use the cupping to pull up that stagnation. Because when you have stagnation, that's usually when you have pain or injury or illness can occur as well when something is stagnant in an area. So that is what you're seeing it used for. Now, also in Eastern medicine, it was also used to help you if you were getting sick. And this one, it was, it was very effective for. If you laid on your stomach, they would take the cups up and down your back on the, not on your spine, but right next to the spine where there's still a good amount of muscle on each side. And they would go up and down and slide the cups up and back. So one cup sliding up and back. So they put a little bit of um, something slippery, like some kind of gel on your back so that the cup can slide, but it's still suctioning up the skin really tight. So it's sort of a, I don't want to say it feels good because it, I mean, it can be a little painful because it's pulling so hard and they would go up and down the back and they would say that was to pull out the toxins. If you felt like you were catching a cold or you were just at the beginning of not feeling good, that was a way that we would help people um, with the toxins in their body. Again, like pulling it out of the system. Now, unfortunately, this is the world we live in. So Michael Phelps was doing it, and now every single person thinks that they need it. And I never saw ever in Eastern medicine in my four years of graduate school, working very closely with Chinese doctors and people who have been doing this forever, I've never seen the amount of cups put on a back like I have seen on Michael Phelps back and what I see trainers doing today and massage therapists doing today. That's not how it was done in the old days. So I feel like it's become a little bit Americanized and now it seems like anybody can do cupping. I guess you can learn it in a weekend or in a one day 
retreat. I'm not sure how, how these people are learning to do cupping, but I do think it's a little bit overused and sort of Americanized and it's the latest and greatest thing that someone can say they offer and sell. I don't really know that it's that effective in helping like injuries. It, it does help initially pull out again, some of that stagnation and swelling, but when I see people constantly getting cupped every single week, I think it's lost some of its value in that. So that's that's cupping. It's certainly worth trying. You will bruise from it. You, as you could see on Michael Phelps' back, you will be bruised from it very, very badly. Some people bruise worse than others. And so it sometimes looks like you've been beaten. I'm not kidding. Like people will be like, oh, what happened to your back? Like what happened to you? And now people know a lot more about cupping, but back in the day when we would cup each other in school and then see people would see these big bruises on my back, they were very concerned that someone had beat me. So you don't want to get cupping if you have a dress you have to wear for an event. Um, anything like that, just know that you will bruise and it could probably take seven to 10 days for that to go away. Great question, Amy. All right, then one of my favorite clients of all time, Gregory Gowan. You should know that this man and his awesome wife, Crystal, are the reason that I did the Alcatraz Triathlon years ago because they invited me to be on their relay team. And I would have never thought that I could do the Alcatraz Triathlon. But Gregory said, I'm going to swim and Crystal's going to run and we need you to bike. And going to that event with them was so much fun and it gave me just, I guess it sort of empowered me to realize, well, I can, I could probably do the whole thing, you know, like Gregory swam it. I could swim it. Crystal's running it. I could run it. I, I'm already biking it. And um, so I love this family because they inspired me and I probably never would have done it had they not invited me to be on their relay team. And they're awesome people. But Gregory had the greatest question of all. He said, why are fries not a requirement of every food regime? How come coach? <laughs> That's what you get with Gregory Gowan. Gregory, I am sorry that French fries are not on the Earn That Body program. I know that every time you have me look at your food log, you're hoping I say, great job on the fries. You can have sweet potato fries. So that's definitely better than other fries. Although some sweet potato fries have just as much grease and sodium, so they're not all that healthy, but that's the best I got for you, Gregory. All right, my next question is from awesome triathlon coach, Troy Clifton, an awesome coach here in the Austin area. He says, I know many ultra endurance athletes deal with this issue. As working professionals that seek to get in their long workouts on weekends and maybe on a bike for six plus hours on a Saturday, how are they supposed to consume enough calories for that day to ensure they are well-fueled for the next day of training? For example, they might burn 3,000 calories and only have a half a day to make that up. It's a great question. And I deal with a ton of endurance athletes, and I myself am one as well. So yes, those days on the bike for six hours, not a joy. I will tell you that. <laughs> but yeah, an endurance athlete, the Ironman athletes, these triathletes, even the marathoners, sometimes we go out and we hit a workout and we potentially could be burning 2,000 calories, 3,000 calories. Some of the men can get up to like 4,000 calories. And then 
you know, as I just said earlier, like, aren't you supposed to eat all those calories then? Because um, even if you were trying to lose some weight, you have to keep up with how many you're burning. You cannot eat that many calories. It's just not going to happen. And, and it's not going to happen of healthy food. I can tell you that. So sometimes I think we could eat that calories if we went for the burgers and the fries and the pizza and the sodas. And we could probably hit it pretty easily if we did that. But as an athlete, we're trying to eat healthy, right? And so that's hopefully not going to be an option. Um, some of these marathoners, I hear this one a lot. It's like, I trained for a marathon. I burned so many calories and I gained weight. And then I asked and I looked at what were you eating? And they would eat the pizza, the burgers, the fries, the ice cream, the donuts after the run, because they were like, well, I thought I could because I burned so many calories. You calories have quality and unhealthy calories are not going to help you lose weight. You will still gain weight from unhealthy fattening calories. So it doesn't quite work like that. Like all calories are not created equal. But Troy, the best thing I can tell you and how I guide my clients when they have those days. For one, I always say this, you got to fuel those days like you're going to fuel your race, which means you're going to be taking in your Gatorade, your Infinite, whatever your sport nutrition is. You're going to be taking your goos and your gels. And that does get included in how many calories you take for the day. We're going to include all that fuel. And fueling takes precedence over everything else. Even if we're losing weight and I'm having my client, client log their food, fueling comes first on the big training days because ultimately that's what we're going for. We're going for a race and we want them to feel great. And so I have to know they're fueling the training days as they will their race. That's the first important thing. Doesn't matter if they hit calories, doesn't matter if they hit uh, macros that day, doesn't matter if they go over sugar and over sodium on the big days because everything on a big day is about did you fuel it properly, did you feel awesome, did you have the energy needed for that workout. Then the second thing I tell them is now, if you did burn 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 calories, I don't want you to think that you're going to eat all that because Again, in healthy food, you'd be full way before you hit 3,000 calories. And to eat just to stuff yourself, is there's no point. So I always tell my clients, really on those days, eat full meals after and, and definitely get in that protein afterwards to help yourself for recovery and eat your a full lunch and a full dinner. And please eat your pre-race breakfast that morning so you can practice that. Get in the calories you hopefully need, but when you're full, you're done. You're just simply done. And if you're not even near 3,000 calories, don't, don't worry about it. If you're full, you're done. Now the next day, you might be hungry, and that's because you were probably in a great deficit. And so I generally say, if you're hungry the next day, you can eat some of those calories you didn't eat from the day before. But again, that's if you're hungry. So it's really important for an athlete to be very in tune with their body because am I really hungry or am I bored eating are two different things. And you have to assess that that next day. So I don't want someone eating 3,000 calories the next day because they can, because they, you know, they didn't eat them the day before. You still really want to have a sense of when you're full, when you're done, that kind of thing. So Troy, that really works for me with my clients. They start to know how much they can eat. But if I see an Ironman client and they did go for their six hour bike ride and they did eat 1600 calories max, that's not enough. 
I mean, I eat 2,000 calories a day right now just to maintain my weight. So if I see someone doing that, then I tell them no. That's that's definitely, even for a woman, 1,600 calories and a six-hour back ride, that is not enough. So then we have to start figuring out where could that person add the calories? Is it before they trained? Do they need more fuel on the actual six-hour ride? Were they fueling enough, getting in enough calories? And then afterwards, um, how can we get those numbers up? So hopefully that helps. Elizabeth Compton, you wanted to know about endurance training after 40. And I'll tell you what, that is an entire podcast episode. (laughs) I didn't want to just not say the question and have you think I didn't see it or forgot it. But what I'd like to do is I would like to do that as an entire podcast. So I, I have a lot of podcasts already queued up, but that one is going to be on my list. I am going to hit that. I'd like to do a podcast on menopause. I'd like to do a podcast on endurance training for the older athlete. Um, There are some changes that take place in our body as a woman. And I'm assuming that's what you meant. Endurance training after 40 for a woman. It doesn't change as much for a man, but there are definitely changes too. So Elizabeth, I promise you it will happen. I can't say when, but it's going to be an entire episode just for you. All right? All right. Julie Lapari, she wants to know about runner's IBS. Okay, that's another one. Julie, I'm going to do an entire podcast episode on this. And one thing I wanted to like specify, because you talked about runner's IBS, and she wrote, the best foods to eat before a long run to keep from having to run faster to get to the bathroom. Um, Do you actually have IBS, or you just mean runner's trots, they call it, or runner's belly? Because a lot of people get runner's belly. I think I read something like 60% of people get runner's belly. And what that is, people, is... After you go for a run or during the run, usually you feel like, and you do, you have to go number two. You have to have a bowel movement and you have to go bad. One of the reasons this happens is just the simple up and down motion of running. Um, It sort of jostles the intestine over and over and over and shakes things loose. (laughs) Great if you have constipation, right? It is one reason actually, constipation can be resolved by people who walk a lot or run because just the gravity of you know that movement and gravity really helps. But it's not really great when you're a runner, is it, Julie? So I'm going to also dedicate an entire episode to that one because that this one can get a little extensive. And um, I owe it to you. It'll happen. I'll get there. Okay, Brenda Bernal, you wanted to know, how do you learn to train for your first 5K or 10K? First of all, I am so pro running your first 5K and 10K. (laughs) Like everybody knows, all my clients, I try to get them to do run programs. And I set my clients up with the very minimal running. Like if they've never run before, I will set them up with one minute of running, one minute off, or one minute on, five minutes off. Like I have built up people who never ran before into half marathon runners because we start really slow. So Brenda, that's the first thing you have to do is you have to start really slow. Now there's a million 5K programs out on online that you could simply get, a million 10K programs as well. So if you just Googled 5K training program, that's a great place to start. Put it in your calendar, give yourself a goal, then put all those workouts in your calendar and start slow and build up. Now, I don't have a 5K or 10K program. I have a half marathon program for beginners. 
and it is awesome. And I've helped many people who have never done a half marathon get to the finish line. The only thing you have to do is be able to run for three miles before you start my program. Don't have to run it fast. You just wanna be up to running three miles straight or run walking three miles if you're gonna be a run walker. But the half marathon program is awesome. It's a 12 week program and so Brenda, if you're up to three miles and you wanna go for the full half, I've got an awesome program for you. Just shoot me an email, kim at earnthatbody.com or anybody who wants to check out the, the half marathon program, go to earnthatbody.com, go to the programs tab, pull down to the athlete section and there you'll see the half marathon training. Okay, next question is from Linny Ellen. That's her name on Facebook. I don't know if you want me to say your real name, so I'm just gonna leave it at that. Um, what are your thoughts of lifting weights with or without shoes? I see so many people that don't use shoes. That's what she said. You've probably seen me with and without shoes in some of the workouts that I do. So generally I tell my clients, unless you're super experienced athlete, that you should wear a shoe because I wanna make sure that your foot has enough support. If you're if you pronate, if you supinate, if you know, if you have certain things that your feet do naturally, then lifting weights without some kind of arch support might not be a benefit. And so I always tell clients you want to make sure you get a cross trainer shoe. So don't wear a running shoe when you're lifting weights because a running shoe doesn't have any lateral support. You want a cross training type shoe. And so go into the store, go into a good shoe store and say I need a shoe more for lifting weights, but don't wear your running shoe. Now, I personally feel like I'm experienced enough that I can, I can set my feet down properly when I lift weights without a shoe. I tend to pronate a little bit, but when I'm barefoot and lifting weights, I am very focused on making sure that my foot form is set before I lift the weights. And so I'm focused on that. And if you feel like you're not at that level where you can make sure that if you are a pronator that you're lifting the arches up a little bit with the integrity of your, you know, your quads and your lower leg, then I really say just wear a shoe. But if you're doing like core work on the floor, I mean, you don't need your shoes for that. But anything where you're really weight bearing, I'm going to recommend the shoe for stability's sake. All right. Great question. Next question, Brittany Mitchell wants to know, what do you order at a Mexican restaurant? Well, it should be known that I hit a Mexican restaurant once a week, almost always. I love Mexican food. It's probably my favorite food ever. Um, now, when you say, what do you order? You, there's a couple things I want to define. <laughs> I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm not on the Earn That Body program. And so that's gonna be different what I order on those days, then, oh, I have a photo shoot in two weeks and I am a few pounds over, I'd like to drop a few pounds. Those are two different ways that I would have to order, right? So normally I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm, I'm generally in my two pound weight zone and I, I rarely stray from that zone. So on a normal day, I will go and order usually the enchiladas, usually, but I don't, I don't get a cheese enchilada. Um, usually it's a chicken enchilada and I pretty much eat the entire thing. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I probably just about lick the plate if they would let me. Um, with the chips, I try to be very conscious 
As everybody knows, I always say, grab a handful of chips, put them on your plate, don't keep digging back into the bowl, the endless bowl of chips. The, the chips are one of the biggest problems at Mexican restaurants is that it's an endless bowl and you have no idea how many you've eaten. And before you've even gotten your entree, you've now sucked down like one and a half bowls of chips with a ton of salsa that has so much sodium in it. So if you can grab your handful of chips and then eat your enchiladas, I think you'll be fine. Now, if I was on the ETB program, the Earn That Body program, and I was trying to lose a few pounds and I still wanted to go to a Mexican restaurant, I would probably get one of the taco salads. And I would ask for the dressing on the side because it's the dressing that has so much sodium. I would make sure there's some chicken in it. I probably would only have a few chips at all, if at all. Um, and I think a lot of those taco salads are the best way to go. You just have to be careful, like I said, with the dressing because it's loaded in sodium and can have a lot of fat. Uh, you know, maybe not too much cheese, things like that. That's what I do. That's what I order. And I, if I'm at Mati's, I get the Gills margarita because it's the best margarita that I've ever had, other than my husband's. Uh, there you have it, Mexican food. And then I had a question from Valerie Glanz, and she said, healthy weeknight meals for working parents, healthy grocery store finds, and organic on a budget. You know, Valerie, that in itself is probably a, a podcast episode, right? But I'll give you a few, and then I think I will do a podcast episode on it. Um, healthy weeknight meals, I mean, if you want to know what I eat, I literally eat a majority of the foods from my Earn That Body recipe book. I eat foods and then I share them with everybody. Like I can get recipes online and then I always have to modify them because they have way too much fat, way too much sodium or not enough protein. So my Earn That Body recipe book are literally foods that I eat daily. My son eats them, my husband eats them. So I consider them to be family friendly. I am not the greatest chef in the world, so if I can make it, anyone can. So they're they're on the simple side. So you might want to check out the ETB recipe book, and you can go to etbrecipebook.com. You can get the information for it. If you are someone who's tracking calories and macros and sodium and fiber, in my recipe book, all of that is included, which is so nice because I do hate when I go get a recipe online and nothing is listed. It, it's so much more helpful if everything is there. So etbrecipebook.com, there you can get some great recipes. Um, health, healthy grocery store finds, I mean, generally they say you wanna shop the perimeter of the grocery store, right? That's where all the produce is and the proteins are. And in the middle is where all the processed foods and the boxes are. So you mostly wanna stick to the perimeter. Trader Joe's has a lot of great healthy foods. Is everything healthy? No. That'd be like saying everything at Whole Foods is healthy. Not everything at Whole Foods is healthy. There's plenty of things that aren't, but they definitely tend towards healthy. And Trader Joe's has some of the best pricing around. So you might wanna check that out. Now, when it comes to organic on a budget, here is my opinion. Organic is a must for dairy and meat. That is like a must. And then if you can afford it, as much produce as you can as well. Now, if you're someone who goes to Starbucks and you wanna afford organic food, drop your Starbucks and it will pay for all of your organic. I, I cannot believe how much a latte costs at Starbucks these days. And I don't even think it's good anymore. <laughs> but that's a side note. 
But honestly, if you're someone, I'm not saying you particularly, Valerie, I'm just speaking in general, but if you are someone who's listening and you're someone who frequents the coffee shops like daily and you're getting the lattes or even if you're getting like the venti ones, it's like five or six or seven dollars for a drink. And if you do that three to five days a week, look at how much money that is that would pay for your organic food. So pretty much everyone who ever tells me that they can't afford organic, then I ask them how many times they go to Starbucks and they tell me three to five times and then I pretty much say, that's your money for organic food. I don't think it's that much more these days. And a, a, lot, of, a lot of the shop, the, the markets and whatnot, um, not just the Whole Foods have these organic options now. Whole Foods is outrageously priced, I get that. But like even like here in Austin, we have a place called HEB, we have a place called Randall's. They have so much organic options now, uh, probably half the cost of Whole Foods. So I do think it's an option. Again, dairy, meat, it's for me, it is not an option not to have organic. Um, and then produce if you can. Okay, couple more and then we're gonna have to call it quits. But someone asked, how often do you drink? Most people know by now I'm not a big drinker. Um, doesn't mean I didn't drink in my day. I did. I think I did my fair share in graduate school, so I didn't have to as an adult, <laughs> an older adult. But I have probably two to three drinks a week, and that starts on a Friday. Uh, I do not drink during the week because for me it's just easier to have a hard rule. Like I don't drink during the week, and then I usually drink have a one drink on Friday, one drink on Saturday, and maybe one drink on Sunday. I have turned into a one drink person because as soon as the second drink was happening, I started feeling it, you know? And some people like to feel it, that little tipsy feeling, but I always felt worse the next day. And I just have gotten to a point in my life where I'm very present in my body and I want to feel good as much as I can. And I always felt bad or yucky or a headache or sluggish after the second glass of wine. So I'm a one drink kind of gal. I, I literally savor the glass so I don't gulp it down, but I know that I'm only going to have one, one glass of wine. And so I just like really have it slowly and I enjoy it. And that's how often I drink. Next question someone asked was, what is your favorite splurge meal? <sighs> I mean, Mexican food is definitely a splurge, right? But I, I had to tell you, I am a burger fries kind of girl. Like I love a good burger here in Austin. Like Hot Dotties is a good splurge for me. And yes, we're going to get the fries. We're going to split the fries, <laughs> but we're going to get the fries. So that's probably my favorite splurge meal. And then the last question I saw was, what books do you read? Um, I have an obsession with running in case people didn't realize that <laughs> probably because I'm not the greatest runner in the world and I'm just trying to be better each day and so I read a lot of running books like um, I'm actually reading right now Steve Magnus's passion project I just finished reading Steve Magnus's book on running um, I've read several of his he's a he's the coach at the University of Houston he's amazing and he writes a lot of running books so I read a lot of those I read a lot about business as well. But if you want to see, I, I have a lot of the books that I've read um, on my favorite things link. So this is kind of hidden on my website. So you, it's only for those who know about it. 
<laughs> I'm going to tell you a secret. But if you go to earnthatbody.com, scroll all the way down to the bottom. It's a new website, so it's sort of been revamped. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom, there is a little link at the bottom, and it says My Favorite Things. If you click on that, you can see all my favorite things. So a lot of the books that I have read or am reading are there. Different workout tools are there. The blender I have, you know, the toaster I have, the juicer I have. All the things that I love and are my favorites are on that page. So scroll down to the bottom, go to the My Favorite Things link, and you can not only see what books I love and have read recently, um, but also other things I use. Another book I read recently was Jillian Michaels' new book about aging, and I really liked that one as well. And there you have it, everyone. That is Ask Me Anything. We had some really good questions. I hope that answered them for you. Please follow me on social media because that's how I get most of this uh, interaction with clients and people who aren't even clients. So if you follow Earn That Body on Facebook, Definitely follow me on Instagram. I'm doing a lot more with Instagram because they have a lot to do. So I'm trying to utilize the IGTV as a new way for me to get workout videos to y'all. So uh, follow Earn That Body there as well. I am on Twitter, but not really very much. I do have some stuff on Pinterest, but Instagram is probably the hot one right now, but definitely Facebook as well. And the, the other thing is interact with me, okay? So if I post something, Give me a response, answer a question I'm gonna put on. I love interacting with all of you and it's it's me. It's not it's not my assist, I don't have an assistant or a lot of people have other people responding for them, but if you have a question, you can always reach me on, you know, DM me or reach out on social media as well. That's everything, everyone. I hope you have a fantastic week ahead. And just so you know, Earn That Body starts at the end of July, July 29th. If you feel like you need some help with your weight loss or you need to get things back on track, that is the session for you. Check out earnthatbody.com. Always here to bring you fitness, nutrition, and health information you can put into play right away. For more information about Kim Eagle's online programs, go to earnthatbody.com or check out Earn That Body on all forms of social media, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube.